9. A cation and insulivation, which are largely mechanical, prepare the food for certain chemical processes by which it is dissolved. The first of these occurs in the stomach and to this organ the food is transferred from the mouth. The chief organs concerned in deglutition are the tongue, the pharynx, and the esophagus. The pharynx is a round and somewhat cone-shaped cavity, about four and one-half inches in length, which lies just back of the nostrils, mouth, and larynx. It is remarkable for its openings, seven in number, by means of which it communicates with other cavities and tubes of the body. One of these openings is into the mouth, one into the esophagus, one into the larynx, and one into each of the nostrils, while two small tubes the eustachian pass from the upper part of the pharynx to the middle ears. The pharynx is the part of the food canal that is crossed by the passageway for the air, to keep the food from passing out of its natural channel. The openings into the air passages have to be carefully guarded. This is accomplished through the soft palate and epiglottis, which are operated somewhat as valves. The muscular coat of the pharynx is made up of a series of overlapping muscles which, by their contractions, draw the sides together and diminish the cavity. The mucous membrane lining the pharynx is smooth like that of the mouth, being covered with a layer of flat epithelial cells. The esophagus, or gullet, is a tube eight or nine inches long, connecting the pharynx with the stomach. It lies for the most part in the thoracic cavity and consists chiefly of a thick mucus lining surrounded by a heavy coat of muscle. The muscular coat is composed of two layers an inner layer whose fibers encircle the tube and an outer layer whose fibers run lengthwise. Steps in deglutition. The process of deglutition varies with the kind of food. With bulky food it consists of three steps, or stages, as follows, 1. By the contraction of the muscles of the cheeks, the food ball, or bolus, is pressed into the center of the mouth and upon the upper surface of the tongue, then the tongue, by an upward and backward movement, pushes the food under the soft palate and into the pharynx, 2. As the food passes from the mouth, the pharynx is drawn up to receive it, at the same time the soft palate is pushed upward and backward closing the opening into the upper pharynx, while the epiglottis is made to close the opening into the larynx. By this means all communication between the food canal and the air passages is temporarily closed. The upper muscles of the pharynx now contract upon the food, forcing it downward and into the esophagus. 3. In the esophagus the food is forced along by the successive contractions of muscles, starting at the upper end of the tube, until the stomach is reached. Swallowing is doubtless aid to some extent by the force of gravity, that it is independent of this force, however, is shown by the fact that one may swallow with the esophagus in a horizontal position, as in lying down, figure 68 figure 68 gastric glands, a single gland showing the two kinds of secreting cells and the duct where the gland opens onto the surface, the inner surface of stomach magnified, the small pits are the openings from the glands, the stomach. The stomach is the largest dilatation of the alimentary canal. It is situated in the abdominal cavity, immediately below the diaphragm, with the larger portion toward the left side. Its connection with the esophagus is known as the cardiac orifice and its opening into the small intestine is called the pyloric orifice. It varies greatly in size in different individuals, being on the average from 10 to 12 inches at its greatest length, from 4 to 5 inches at its greatest width, and holding from 3 to 5 pints. It has the coats common to the canal, but these are modified somewhat to adapt them to its work. The mucous membrane of the stomach is thick and highly developed. It contains great numbers of minute tube-shaped bodies, known as the gastric glands figure 68. 
These are of two general kinds and secrete large quantities of a liquid called the gastric juice. When the stomach is empty, the mucous membrane is thrown into folds which run lengthwise over the inner surface. These disappear. However, when the walls of the stomach are distended with food, the muscular coat consists of three separate layers which are named, from the direction of the fibers, the circular layer, the longitudinal layer, and the oblique layer figure 69. The circular layer becomes quite thick at the pyloric orifice, forming a distinct band which serves as a valve. Figure 69 Figure 69 Muscles of the stomach from Morris Human Anatomy. The layer of longitudinal fibers removed. The outer coat of the stomach, called the serous coat, is a continuation of the peritoneum, the membrane lining the abdominal cavity. Stomach digestion. In the stomach begins the definite work of dissolving those foods which are insoluble in water. This, as already stated, is a double process. There is first a chemical action in which the insoluble are changed into soluble substances, and this is followed immediately by the dissolving action of water. The chief substances digested in the stomach are the proteids. These, in dissolving, are changed into two soluble substances, known as peptones and proteoses. The digestion of the proteids island of course, due to the gastric juice. The gastric juice is a thin, Colorless liquid composed of about 99% of water and about 1% of other substances. The latter are dissolved in the water and include, besides several salts, three active chemical agents hydrochloric acid, pepsin, and renin. Pepsin is the enzyme which acts upon proteids, but it is able to act only in an acid medium a condition which is supplied by the hydrochloric acid. Mixed with the hydrochloric acid it converts the proteids into peptones and proteoses. Other effects of the gastric juice. In addition to digesting proteids, the gastric juice brings about several minor effects. As follows, 1. It checks, after a time, the digestion of the starch which was begun in the mouth by the saliva. 58. This is due to the presence of the hydrochloric acid, the tyolin being unable to act in an acid medium. 2. While there is no appreciable action on the fat itself. The proteid layers that enclose the fat particles are dissolved away figure 79, and the fat is set free. By this means the fat is broken up and prepared for a special digestive action in the small intestine. 3. Dissolved albumin, like that in milk, is curd, or coagulated, in the stomach. This action is due to the renin. The curd mass is then acted upon by the pepsin and hydrochloric acid in the same manner as the other proteids. 4. The hydrochloric acid acts on certain of the insoluble mineral salts found in the foods and reduces them to a soluble condition. 5. It is also the opinion of certain physiologists that cane sugar and maltose double sugars are converted by the hydrochloric acid into dextrose and levulose single sugars. After a variable length of time, the contents of the stomach is reduced to a rather uniform and pulpy mass which is called chyme. Portions of this are now passed at intervals into the small intestine. Muscular action of the stomach. The muscles in the walls of the stomach have for one of their functions the mixing of the food with the gastric juice. By alternately contracting and relaxing, the different layers of muscle keep the form of the stomach changing a result which agitates and mixes its contents. This action varies in different parts of the organ, being slight or entirely absent at the cardiac end, but quite marked at the pyloric end. Another purpose of the muscular coat is to empty the stomach into the small intestine. During the greater part of the digestive period the muscular band at the pyloric orifice is contracted, at intervals, however, this band relaxes, permitting a part of the contents of the stomach to be forced into the small intestine, 
after the discharge the pyloric muscle again contracts, and so remains until the time arrives for another discharge. In addition to emptying the stomach into the small intestine, these muscles also aid in emptying the organ upward and through the esophagus and mouth, should occasion require, vomiting in case of poisoning, or if the food for some reason fails to digest, is a necessary though unpleasant operation. It is accomplished by the contraction of all the muscles of the stomach, together with the contraction of the walls of the abdomen. During these contractions the pyloric valve is closed, and the muscles of the esophagus and pharynx are in a relaxed condition. 59 Figure 70 Figure 70 Passage from Stomach into Small Intestine Illustration also shows arrangement of mucous membrane in the two organs. Debile duct, the small intestine. This division of the alimentary canal consists of a coiled tube about 22 feet in length, which occupies the central, lower portion of the abdominal cavity figure 71, at its upper extremity it connects with the pyloric end of the stomach figure 70, and at its lower end it joins the large intestine, it averages a little over an inch in diameter, and gradually diminishes in size from the stomach to the large intestine, the first 8 or 10 inches form a short curve, known as the duodenum, the upper two-fifths of the remainder is called the jejunum, and the lower three-fifths is known as the ilium. The ilium joins that part of the large intestine known as the cocoon, and at their place of union is a marked constriction which prevents material from passing from the large into the small intestine figure 73. This is known as the ileocecal valve. The mucous membrane of the small intestine is richly supplied with blood vessels and contains glands that secrete a digestive fluid known as the intestinal juice. The membrane is thrown into many transverse, or circular, folds which increase its surface and also prevent materials from passing too rapidly through the intestine. One important respect in which the small intestine differs from all other portions of the food canal is that its surface is covered with great numbers of minute elevations known as the villi. The purpose of these is to aid in the absorption of the nutrients as they become dissolved chapters I. The muscular coat of the small intestine is made up of two distinct layers the inner layer consisting of circular fibers and the outer of longitudinal fibers. These muscles keep the food materials mixed with the juices of the small intestine, but their main purpose is to force the materials undergoing digestion through this long and much coiled tube. The outer, or serous, coat of the small intestine, like that of the stomach, is an extension from the general lining of the abdominal cavity, or peritoneum. In fact, the intestine lies in a fold of the peritoneum, somewhat as an arm in a sling, while the peritoneum, by connecting with the back wall of the abdominal cavity, holds this great coil of digestive tubing in place figure 64. The portion of the peritoneum which attaches the intestine to the wall of the abdomen is called the mesentery. Most of the liquid acting on the food in the small intestine is supplied by two large glands, the liver and the pancreas, that connect with it by ducts. Figure 71 Figure 71 Abdominal cavity with organs of digestion in position. The liver is situated immediately below the diaphragm. On the right side figures 71 and 72, and is the largest gland in the body. It weighs about 4 pounds and is separated into two main divisions, or lobes. It is complex in structure and differs from the other glands in several particulars. It receives blood from two distinct sources the portal vein and the hepatic artery. The portal vein collects the blood from the stomach, intestines, and spleen, and passes it to the liver. This blood is loaded with food materials but contains little or no oxygen. The hepatic artery, which branches from the aorta, carries to the liver blood rich in oxygen. In the liver the portal vein and the hepatic artery divide and subdivide, 
and finally empty their blood into a single system of capillaries surrounding the liver cells. These capillaries in turn empty into a single system of veins which, uniting to form the hepatic veins two or three in number, pass the blood into the inferior vena cava figure 72. Figure 72 Figure 72 Relations of the liver. Diagram showing the connection of the liver with the large blood vessels and the food canal. The liver secretes daily from 1 to 2 pounds of a liquid called bile. A reservoir for the bile is provided by a small, membranous sac, called the gallbladder, located on the underside of the liver. The bile passes from the gallbladder, and from the right and left lobes of the liver, by three separate ducts. These unite to form a common tube which, uniting with the duct from the pancreas, empties into the duodenum. Though usually described as a digestive gland, the liver has other functions of equal or greater importance. Chapter XII. The bile is a golden yellow liquid, having a slightly alkaline reaction and a very bitter taste. It consists, on the average, of about 97% of water and 3% of solids. 60 The solids include bile pigments, bile salts, a substance called colostrum, and mineral salts. The pigments coloring matter of the bile are derived from the hemoglobin of broken down red corpuscles. Page 27. Much about the composition of the bile is not understood. It is known. However, to be necessary to digestion, its chief use being to aid in the digestion and absorption of fats. It is claimed also that the bile aids the digestive processes in some general ways counteracting the acid of the gastric juice, preventing the decomposition of food in the intestines, and stimulating muscular action in the intestinal walls. No enzymes have been discovered in the bile. The pancreas is a tapering and somewhat wedge-shaped gland, and is so situated that its larger extremity or head, is encircled by the duodenum. From here the more slender portion extends across the abdominal cavity nearly parallel to and behind the lower part of the stomach. It has a length of 6 or 8 inches and weighs from 2 to 3 and 1 half ounces. Its secretion, the pancreatic juice, is emptied into the duodenum by a duct which, as a rule, unites with the duct from the liver. The pancreatic juice is a colorless and rather viscid liquid, having an alkaline reaction. It consists of about 97.6% of water and 2.4% of solids. The solids include mineral salts the chief of which is sodium carbonate and four different chemical agents, or enzymes, trypsin, amylopsin, steapsin, and a milk-curding enzyme. These active constituents make of the pancreatic juice the most important of the digestive fluids. It acts with vigor on all of the nutrients insoluble in water, producing the following changes. 1. It converts the starch into maltose, completing the work begun by the saliva. This action is due to the amylopsin, 61 which is similar to tyolin but is more vigorous. 2. It changes proteids into peptones and proteoses, completing the work begun by the gastric juice. This is accomplished by the trypsin, which is similar to, but more active than, the pepsin. 3. It digests fat. In this work the active agent is the steapsin, the necessity of a milk-curding enzyme somewhat similar to the renin of the gastric juice, is not understood. Digestion of fat. Several theories have been proposed at different times regarding the digestion and absorption of fat. Among these, what is known as the solution theory seems to have the greatest amount of evidence in its favor. According to this theory, the fat, under the influence of the steapsin, absorbs water and splits into two substances, recognized as glycerin and fatty acid. This finishes the process so far as the glycerin is concerned, as this is soluble in water, but the fatty acid, which from certain fats is insoluble in water, 
62 requires further treatment. The fatty acid is now supposed to be acted on in one, or both, of the following ways. 1. To be dissolved as fatty acid by the action of the bile since bile is capable of dissolving it under certain conditions. 2. To be converted by the sodium carbonate into a form of soap which is soluble in water. The emulsification of fat is known to occur in the small intestine. By this process the fat is separated into minute particles which are suspended in water, but not changed chemically, the mixture being known as an emulsion. While this is believed by some to be an actual process of digestion, the advocates of the solution theory claim that it is a process accompanying and aiding the conversion of fat into fatty acid and glycerin. 63 The intestinal juice is a clear liquid with an alkaline reaction, containing water, mineral salts, and certain proteid substances that may act as enzymes. It assists in bringing about an alkaline condition in the small intestine and aids in the reduction of cane sugar and maltose to the simple sugars, dextrose and levulose. Since it is difficult to obtain this liquid in sufficient quantities for experimenting, its uses have not been fully determined. Recent investigators, however, assign to it an important place in the work of digestion, work of the small intestine. The small intestine is the most important division of the alimentary canal. It serves as a receptacle for holding the food while it is being acted upon. It secretes the intestinal juice and mixes the food with the digestive fluids. It propels the food toward the large intestine, and, in addition to all this, serves as an organ of absorption. Digestion is practically finished in the small intestine, and a large portion of the reduced food is here absorbed. There is always present, however, a variable amount of material that is not digested. This, together with a considerable volume of liquid, is passed into the large intestine. The large intestine is a tube from 5 to 6 feet in length and averaging about 1 and 1 half inches in diameter. It begins at the lower right side of the abdominal cavity, forms a coil which almost completely surrounds the coil of small intestine, and finally terminates at the surface of the body figures 2, 71 and 73. It has three divisions, known as the cocoon, the colon, and the rectum. Figure 73 Figure 73 Passage from small into a large intestine. That the ileocecal valve is the narrowest constriction of the food canal. The cocoon is the pouch-like dilatation of the large intestine which receives the lower end of the small intestine. It measures about two and one half inches in diameter and has extending from one side a short, slender, and blind tube, called the vermiform appendix. This structure serves no purpose in digestion, but appears to be the rudiment of an organ which may have served a purpose at some remote period in the history of the human race. The cocoon gradually blends into the second division of the large intestine, called the colon. The colon consists of four parts, described as the ascending colon, the transverse colon, the descending colon, and the sigmoid flexure, or sigmoid colon. The first three divisions are named from the direction of the movement of materials through them and the last from its shape, which is similar to that of the Greek letter sigma Greek capital letter sigma. The rectum is the last division of the large intestine it is a nearly straight tube, from 6 to 8 inches in length, and connects with the external surface of the body. The general structure of the large intestine is similar to that of the small intestine, and, like the small intestine, it is held in place by the peritoneum. It differs from the small intestine. However, in its lining of mucous membrane and in the arrangement of the muscular coat, the mucous membrane presents a smooth appearance and has no villi, while the longitudinal layer of the muscular coat is limited to three narrow bands that extend along the greater length of the tube figure 74. These bands are shorter than the coats, and draw the large intestine into a number of shallow pouches, 
by which it is readily distinguished from the small intestine figure 71, figure 74 figure 74 section of large intestine, showing the coats, 1, serous coat, 2, circular layer of muscle, 3, submucous coat, 4, mucous membrane, 5, muscular bands extending lengthwise over the intestine, work of the large intestine, the large intestine serves as a receptacle for the materials from the small intestine, the digestive fluids from the small intestine continue their action here, and the dissolved materials also continue to be absorbed, in these respects the work of the large intestine is similar to that of the small intestine, it does, however, a work peculiar to itself in that it collects and retains and digest food particles, together with other wastes, and ejects them periodically from the canal, work of the alimentary muscles, the mechanical part of digestion is performed by the muscles that encircle the food canal, their uses, which have already been mentioned in connection with the different organs of digestion, may be here summarized, they supply the necessary force for masticating the food, they propel the food through the canal, they mix the food with the different juices, at certain places they partly or completely close the passage until a digestive process is completed, they may even cause a reverse movement of the food, as in vomiting, all of the alimentary muscles, except those around the mouth, are involuntary, their work is of the greatest importance, other purposes of the digestive organs, the digestive organs serve other important purposes besides that of dissolving the foods, they provide favorable conditions for passing the dissolved material into the blood, they dispose of such portions of the foods as fail, in the digestive processes, to be reduced to a liquid state, a considerable amount of waste material is also separated from the blood by the glands of digestion especially the liver, and this is passed from the body with the undigest portions of food, then the food canal stomach in particular is a means of holding, or storing, food which is awaiting the processes of digestion, considering the number of these purposes, the digestive organs are remarkably simple, both in structure and in method of operation, hygiene of digestion many of the ills to which flesh is air are due to improper methods of taking food and are cured by observing the simple rules of eating, Habit plays a large part in the process and children should, for this reason, be taught early to eat properly, since the majority of the digestive processes are involuntary and the food, after being swallowed, is practically beyond control. Careful attention must be given to the proper mastication of the food and to such other phases of digestion as are under control. Necessity for thorough mastication. Mastication prepares the food for the digestive processes which follow. Unless the food has been properly masticated, the digestive fluids in the stomach and intestines cannot act upon it to the best advantage. When the food is carefully chewed, a larger percent of it is actually digested a point of importance where economy in the use of food needs to be practiced. A fact not to be overlooked is that one cannot eat hurriedly and practice thorough mastication. The food must not be swallowed in lumps, but reduced to a finely divided and pulpy mass. This requires time. The one who hurries through the meal is necessarily compelled to bolt his food. 30 minutes is not too long to give to a meal, and a longer period is even better. Perhaps the most important result of giving plenty of time to the taking of food is that of stimulating the digestive glands to a proper degree of activity, that both the salivary and gastric glands are excited by the sight, smell, and thought of food and, through taste, by the presence of food in the mouth, has been fully demonstrated. Food that is thoroughly masticated and relished will receive more saliva and gastric juice, and probably more of other juices, than if hastily chewed and swallowed. 
This has a most important bearing upon the efficiency of the digestive processes. Order of taking food. There has been evolved through experience a rather definite order of taking food, which our knowledge of the process of digestion seems to justify. The heavy foods proteids for the most part are eaten first, after which are taken starchy foods and fats, and the meal is finished off with sweetmeats and pastry. 6. Before the scientific arguments for this order are the following. 1. By receiving the first of the gastric flow the proteids can begin digesting without delay. Since these are the main substances acted on in the stomach, the time required for their digestion is shortened by eating them first. 2. Sugar, being of the nature of pre-digested starch, quickly gets into the blood and satisfies the relish for food. The result of taking sugar first may be to cause one to eat less than he needs and to diminish the activity of the glands. 3. Fat or grease, if taken first, tends to form a coating over the walls of the stomach and around the material to be digested. This prevents the juices from getting to and mixing with the foods upon which they are to act. 4. Starch following the proteids, for the most part, does not so quickly come in contact with the gastric juice. This enables the tylin of the saliva to continue its action for a longer time than if the starch were eaten first. Liquids during the meal. Liquids as ordinarily taken during the meal are objectionable. They tend to diminish the secretion of the saliva and to cause rapid eating. Instead of eating slowly and swallowing the food only so fast as the glands can supply the necessary saliva, the liquid is used to wash the food down. Water or other drinks should be taken after the completion of the meal or when the mouth is completely free from food. Even then it should be taken in small sips. While the taking of a small amount of water in this way does no harm, a large volume has the effect of weakening the gastric juice. Most of the water needed by the body should be taken between meals. The state of mind has much to do with the proper digestion of the food. Worry, anger, fear, and other disturbed mental states are known to check the secretion of fluids and to interfere with the digestive processes, while the cultivation of cheerfulness is important for its general hygienic effects. It is of a special value in relation to digestion. Intense emotions, either during or following the meal, should if possible be avoided. The table is no place for settling difficulties or administering rebuke. The conversation, on the other hand, should be elevating and joy-giving, thereby inducing a desirable reactionary influence upon the digestive processes. Care of the teeth. The natural teeth are indispensable for the proper mastication of the food. Of a special value are the molars the teeth that grind the food. The development of the profession of dentistry has made possible the preservation of the teeth, even when naturally poor, as long as one has need of them. To preserve the teeth they must be kept clean. They should be washed at least once a day with a soft bristled brush, and small particles of food, lodged between them, should be removed with a wooden pick. The biting of hard substances, such as nuts, should be avoided, on account of the danger of breaking the enamel. Although the chewing of tough substances is considered beneficial, decayed places in the teeth should be promptly filled by the dentist. It is well, even when decayed places are not known to exist to have the teeth examined occasionally in order to detect such places before they become large. On account of the expense, pain, and inconvenience there is a tendency to put off dental work which one knows ought to be done. Perhaps in no other instance is procrastination so surely punished. The decayed places become larger and new points of decay are started, and the pain, inconvenience, and expense are increased proportionately. The natural appetite should be followed with reference to both the kind and the amount of food eaten. 
No system of knowledge will ever be devised which can replace the appetite as an aid in the taking of food. It is nature's means of indicating the needs of the body. The natural appetite may be spoiled, however, by overeating and by the use of highly seasoned foods, or by indulging in stimulants during the meal. It is spoiled in children by too free indulgence in sweetmeats. By cultivating the natural appetite and heeding its suggestions, one has at his command an almost infallible guide in the taking of food. Preparation of meals. The cooking of food serves three important purposes. It renders the food more digestible, relieving the organs of unnecessary work. It destroys bacteria that may be present in the food, diminishing the likelihood of introducing disease germs into the body, and it makes the food more palatable, thereby supplying a necessary stimulus to the digestive glands. While the methods employed in the preparation of the different foods had much to do with the ease with which they are digested and with their nourishing qualities, the scope of our subject does not permit of a consideration of these methods. Quantity of food. Overeating and indirecting are both objectionable from a hygienic standpoint. Overeating, by introducing an unnecessary amount of food into the body, overworks the organs of digestion and also the organs of excretion. It may also lead to the accumulation of burdensome fat and of harmful wastes. On the other hand, the taking of too little food impoverishes the blood and weakens the entire body. As a rule, however, more people eat too much than too little and to quit eating before the appetite is fully satisfied is with many persons a necessary precaution. The power of self-control, valuable in all phases of life, is indispensable in the avoidance of overeating. Frequency of taking food, eating between meals is manifestly an unhealthful practice. The question has also been raised as to whether the common habit of eating three times a day is best sweet to all classes of people. Many people of weak digestive organs have been benefited by the plan of two meals a day while others adopt the plan of eating one heavy meal and two light ones. Either plan gives the organs of digestion more time to arrest and diminishes the liability. 